to get Israel out of Egypt than it was to get Egypt out of Israel. They had so thoroughly been embedded in an Egyptian culture that they struggled to replace an Egyptian worldview with what God had revealed to them. In fact, it took a 40-year sojourn in the wilderness for that process to run its course. And even then, traces of Egypt remained. And the story of Israel and Egypt is a picture of antithesis. An antithesis that has generated a lot of controversy. Tertullian, the second century church father, said, What indeed has Athens to do with Jerusalem? And he was talking about philosophy. Can the church rely on Athens and its study of philosophy in defense of the Christian faith? Augustine came along several centuries later and drew what he could from the secular philosophers, which he called plundering the Egyptians. Which is it? How are we to understand the antithesis between Christ and the world? Can we glean from the wisdom of the world? May we adopt its strategies and methods and apply them to ministry. In John chapter 7 and all the way until chapter 12, Jesus engages in a series of increasingly hostile confrontations that will culminate in his trial and execution. The first of these is a confrontation with his own brothers, the most famous of which is James the Just, or James uh, the Great, who presided over the church in Jerusalem. Along with many of the confrontations in the chapter 7, this section of John, it would seem that Jesus' brothers have ulterior motives when they come And they suggest that if he wishes to be successful, whatever that means, in ministry, he needs to change his methods. He needs to have different methods. He needs to use different methods to accomplish his mission as Christ, as the Messiah. And while this slender text won't address all the debates around Christ in culture, it does hint that Jesus' methods and motives differ greatly from the world's. In the way of uh, 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 looking at the negative example, we learn not to adopt the world standards by Jesus' rebuke of his brothers. And we can build a positive case for what we should do only by tracing the lines through the completion of Jesus' ministry, which for his brothers in this conversation lies in the future. But we have uh, the completed story. And Jesus' standards for ministry do not conform to this world. Therefore, we must adopt his standards for ministry. Saints, as you are able, please stand with me as we read from the Gospel of John, chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. It is also printed in your bulletin. We stand out of respect for the Word of God, especially for the Gospels. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. 
For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. And the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for this, your word. And we ask, Father, that as we peer into the ministry, into the methods and motives of the Lord Jesus Christ, that would shape and conform us to him, that we may embody in our own ministries the work of Jesus Christ as we are seeking to not be conformed to this world, but be conformed to him. We pray this in his name, and amen. Amen. You may be seated. We need to set the scene for this confrontation. Remember that in John 5 and in John 6, both of those were uh, events Uh, We'll call them signs or works that Jesus did that were accompanied by his testimony about what he had accomplished. First, he heals a man who was lame by by a pool, and then he has a long discourse because he healed them on the Sabbath, and the Jews confronted him over doing that. Finally, in chapter 6, he has a very long sermon uh, discoursing on his uh, turning the five barley loaves and three fishes into Uh, food for 5,000. And he uh, says some very off-putting things in that sermon. And that each of those confrontations began to end more and more hostile. In chapter 5, the Jews were actually seeking to kill him. Why? Because he was making himself, uh, he was identifying himself with God the Father. And so they wanted to kill him. And in John 6, his large group of disciples that were following him is whittled down over and over as he uh, um, says very off-putting comments like, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And that did not go over well with the crowds. But not just the crowds, even his own disciples found this hard to believe. And they decided that following Jesus just wasn't worth it. And that's in John chapter 6, verse 66. And it seems that at each confrontation, it gets more hostile. And Jesus loses a little more credibility and a little more of his followers. And now he's left with only the 12. And he's seeking to avoid being killed as it's not quite his time. Jesus keeps his ministry out of the limelight by staying in Galilee. Verse 1. But with the approach of a prominent feast, the Feast of Booths, in verse 2, his brothers tried to convince him to seize that opportunity to make something of himself. 
to regain some followers and expand his ministry. And that's in verses 3 through 4. And John interjects. John is always very helpful, giving us clues to what's happening in the story. And he says, they respond this way to Jesus because they do not believe in him. And that's going to be important for the rest of this story. And that's in verse 5. But Jesus is not, he's not seduced by the promise of worldly glory. His motives and methods differ greatly from the world's which has led the world to hate him. And that's in verse 6 through 7. So he sends them ahead of him to the feast, choosing to remain in Galilee until an appointed time. And that's in verse 8. When he finally goes up, he goes at first in secret, verse 10. In Jerusalem, we hear, we get kind of a, a, a street view picture of how the crowds are anticipating Jesus. Some are saying, oh, I think he's a good man. Others are saying, no, he is leading people astray. But nobody, nobody spoke openly about Jesus because of their fear of the Jews. And it turns out that Jesus' brothers are more aligned with the world than with Jesus. The world, Jesus shows, has the wrong methods and the wrong motives. And as we look closely at this confrontation, what becomes clear is Jesus does not have the same ministry standards that his brothers do. And out of this discussion emerges some, some key characteristics of ministry that, that accord with the standards that are set forward by Christ. So first, the world has the wrong methods. And how do you judge if a ministry is successful? How, what standards would you use to measure it? Would it be the number of followers? Money, the amount of money coming into that ministry? Would it be the building projects that they're able to accomplish? Would it be their outreach in the community? And if you judged that a ministry was unsuccessful, what would be the methods that you would suggest to make it successful? Pastors and ministry leaders have pondered these questions since Jesus founded the church. And Jesus' brothers think that they have an answer to this question. They have clearly judged Jesus' ministry as being unsuccessful. By the way, that's not a wise thing to do. They have, for them, it does seem to revolve around a lack of followers. Jesus has whittled his influence down. People are not following him, and he needs to gain more followers. He needs to get out in front of this problem. And it seems from verse 3 that his brothers have seen his works and believe that others might be persuaded to follow him. That is, they seem to believe that he could be great. Jesus, you have potential, but let us help you and we'll steer you in the right direction. If you would just adopt some better methods. So what do they suggest will fix a dying ministry? Well, Part of it is to get out of the sticks. You can't keep doing ministry where no one's at. And the problem they see is one of obscurity. If he would just take his ministry down the road to Judea, then he would finally get the traction that he deserves. You see, during one of the three mandatory festivals, Jerusalem would swell from a meager 100,000 people to upwards of 2.7 million people three times a year. 
Jerusalem just overflows its boundaries because all of the pilgrims make their way up to Jerusalem to worship God. It's mandatory for all males to go and to worship God. And his brothers seize on this. They say, this is the time. We're all going up to the Feast of Booths. Now's the opportunity. You're going to have a crowd. There's going to be millions of people there, and you can make a name for yourself. You can be great if you just get where the people are. So Jesus' brothers think the best method is for him to make a name for himself. And to do that, he needs to go where people are. But he can't just go there. He's got to go there and he has to do big things. He's got to do his works. You know, the things that he's been doing that's been drawing crowds. You've got to go. You've got to do those works, but you've got to do it in front of people so that they can see you. It's really hard at this point to tell in the story if Jesus' brothers are being kind of snarky. They might, maybe they're being sarcastic. I get the picture. It's kind of like Joseph with his brothers. You remember Joseph, the dreamer? You know, that little brother that's annoying who has the dream that he's going to rule over you. And all of his father and mother bow down and all his siblings. You know, and, and Joseph is sent to go out into the fields to, to visit his brothers. And they say, oh, here comes that dreamer. You know, they don't believe in Joseph. They don't believe in his dream, even though they're, eventually Joseph is vindicated, is he not? So I think something like that is going on here. Hey, go and do your works, whatever those are, in Jerusalem. Maybe you'll get a crowd. Maybe you'll gain a hearing. I think there's, there's some sarcasm to what they're saying. But, but what they're, their method that they're suggesting is that he needs to go public with his show. So the reasoning continues today. In order for our ministry to grow, we need to build a platform. We need to showcase our church's ministry. We need to do a rebrand and build a better social media presence. Anything to get the work of the church in the public. Now it's important to note that the method they propose is not necessarily sinful or wrong. Nor are the modern equivalents that I just mentioned. Going to where people are and preaching the gospel with demonstrations of power is exactly what the church has been doing for 2,000 years. The problem comes when we make the method the mission. When we turn the method of our ministry into the mission of our ministry. Why did Jesus do his works? Why was he working to begin with? Was it just to make a name for himself? Was he trying to, to, to build credibility with the religious leaders by, by making a name, by producing wine, by being a sick healer, by being a bread maker, by being a water walker or a sight giver or a dead raiser? No, he, he did not do his works, what John calls signs, so that he would have a a little bit of a leg up on the competition. He's not jockeying for a position among the elite in society. The works Jesus does are signs. And signs signify a deeper reality. Jesus' signs authenticate his claim to be the Christ, the Messiah, the one that was sent by God to save his people from their sins. They authenticate that he is the Son of God 
and Savior of the world. And in that, they manifest God's power through him. Jesus does things that only God could do. They show that the new creation is breaking into the world in the person and work of Jesus. But the signs, when they are divorced from the deeper reality, are not signs at all. Because the wine eventually ran out. The officer's son finally did die. And the lame man stopped walking in death. And the 5,000 were hungry probably that same day. And the blind man soon was consigned to seeing Jesus only with the eyes of faith like everyone else. And Lazarus died again. And if that was all that those signs could offer, they would be like every other thing in life that offers to satisfy but only ever leaves us wanting more. Jesus was working and his works were spectacular. They would be very, very public. So much so that within that generation, that little insignificant band of hangers-on, those 12 that just clung to Jesus, eventually, within that generation, turned the entire world upside down. So there's, there's nothing wrong with a social media presence or a rebrand, or showcasing our church's ministry, or the desire to go where people are, or even to build a platform, per se. Grace restores nature. And that means that the methods used for sinful purposes can be reordered and used to glorify God. But when we are building an online presence for Jesus, and and suddenly it becomes all about me, it, all, it becomes all about self-promotion and self-glorification. Then we have lost sight of our true purpose. And that leads to the second thing that Jesus' brothers had wrong, their motives. At first we asked, what makes a ministry successful? And if one was unsuccessful, what methods would you use to make it successful? But is success the right motive for ministry. And if so, what, what, what would qualify as success? If by success we mean the glory of God, then that is indeed a good motive for ministry. And while that might be the, the stated goal of our ministry, often the unstated goal of a successful ministry is exactly what Jesus' brothers had in mind. Large crowds, a following, money, influence, popularity, on and on. The motive subtly changes from a God-centered motive to a man-centered one, from success to successism. We know their motives are wrong because of Jesus' statement in verse 7. Look at verse 7. He tells them, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it, that its works are evil. Why does the world hate Jesus? Well, because he condemns its works, i.e., its methods and motives. But his brothers are not hated by the world. Why? Because they are aligned with the world's priorities, the world's standards for work, methods, and motives. 
The world does not hate its own. It loves and promotes them. And their motives driven by their unbelief are consistent with the world's, and therefore they're man-centered. Perhaps they hope to hitch their wagon to Jesus' rising star so that they can get some glory for themselves. At the heart of the brothers' motives for Jesus' ministry is the sin of vainglory. Vainglory is an inordinate desire for one's own glory. Thomas Aquinas reasons that someone is vainglorious when they pursue glory for three wrong reasons. He says vainglory involves an individual's glorying either in what does not exist, which pertains to untruthfulness, or in worldly or perishable things, which pertains to disordered desire, or in the testimony of men whose judgment is not fixed, and this pertains to imprudence. See, vainglory is pursuing glory in what is false, in things, in worldly things, or in the praise of men. And it would seem that Jesus' brothers are more interested in glorying in worldly or perishable things, successism, and the praise of men, fame, than they are in glorying in God. Some of the online ministries of churches have subtly moved from the motive of glorifying God to vain glory. And it's now all about promoting and advancing their gifted and charismatic pastor. And the entire church revolves around him. And the evidence for this is seen when these pastors or ministry leaders have moral failures, and then suddenly a vibrant church collapses in a heaps and disappears. We were involved or, or around when Mars Hill in Seattle area and there was a campus in Portland collapsed because of his failure. And that church is gone. And it all revolved around him, the pastor. It wasn't around their common communion or their worship of the triune God. It was all about his giftedness. Sometimes, though, the problem is the congregation. And this was the case in Corinth. And we talked about this this morning. It was, not, it was no fault of Paul or Apollos or Peter that factions had formed around them. It was the fault of the divisive Corinthians who sought to one-up their brother and sister in Christ by name-dropping. I belong to this guy, so I'm obviously much more spiritual than you are. And the congregation was jockeying for power in a vainglorious way by glorying not in Christ, but in his servants. And you can imagine the tendency must have been so strong for Jesus' brothers to do the same. When things are going great and the people love their brother, they must have felt the desire to identify with him. Oh yeah, he's, isn't he great? It runs in the family, really. But now, now that Jesus has lost his fame and labors in obscurity, literally out in the sticks, there must have been a strong temptation to disdain Jesus, seeking rather to distance themselves from him, or at least the desire to make sure he doesn't remain in that situation. We've got to make sure our brother's ministry grows. There are certainly sinful methods to engage in ministry. Don't get me wrong. No one I know of is proposing to 
to open a brothel to reach lonely men with the gospel. But what, what gets churches in trouble most often is not their methods, but their motives. Why? Why are we engaged in ministry? We have to have the right methods done for the right motives. Jesus, of course, on the other hand, has the right motives, obviously. He, he tells his brother, I am not going up to this feast. But then in verse 10, he does go up to the feast. And this has puzzled commentators for a long time. In fact, some scribes who copied the New Testament ended up adding, yet, I'm not going up yet to this feast trying to remove some of the ambiguity between his statement in one verse and his actions in the next. But Jesus says, I am not going up to this feast. And I believe that he's referring to going up with the pilgrims, like his brothers, going up at that moment when all of his neighbors and friends and family would all pilgrimage together to go up to Jerusalem. But he goes later. You see, he waits for the appointed time. The point Jesus is making to his brothers is all about timing. The brothers are trying to get Jesus to come with them, but that's not the right time. Jesus is not lying to his brother. Rather, we learn he does nothing until the appointed time. And most often when Jesus refers to timing in John's gospel, he's talking about his death. He often uses the word hour. Now is the hour. For me to be glorified. Jesus told his mother in chapter 2 that his hour had not yet come. And later in chapter 7 and 8, the religious leaders try in vain to arrest him. But they were prevented because it was not yet his hour. And finally in chapter 12, he says in verse 23, And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And by that he meant it was time for him to be lifted up on the cross to draw all people to himself. Jesus has every intention of going to the feast, but for very different motives. His ministry will will involve publicity, but, but not exactly as his brothers conceived of it. Yes, he would be famous, but in the eyes of the world, he would be infamous. His method of ministry was to go and to pick a fight with the religious leaders such that over the course of the next five months, he would become public enemy number one. And the Feast of Tabernacles occurs in September, October. And by the following spring, Jesus is crucified on Passover in March or April. Time is going quickly, but not yet. But before Jesus would draw all people to himself, he would, he would further whittle down his disciples to only a few women and the apostle John. Everybody else would scatter from him and deny him. And he would be alone, naked, beaten to a bloody pulp and hung on a tree as a public spectacle. That was Jesus' ministry method. Interestingly, the ministry leaders who had him killed, thought they were doing it because his methods and motives were suspect. They killed him because he didn't have their standard of ministry. That was only because they were of the world. 
They couldn't have known that his methods were not motivated by selfish ambition or vain glory. Rather, Jesus was motivated by the glory of God and the salvation of the world, which would actually restore his people to a place of glory again. But his method followed a very clear path that began with death and the grave leading to resurrection, life, and then glory. The world wanted glory without the cross. And therefore they hated Jesus. But Jesus' God-centered ministry showed the only path for glory lies through the cross and involves dying. So in the simplest terms possible, what are the standards for ministry that Jesus embodies and calls the church to continue to embody? Ministry Methods that take the shape of the gospel, pursued through the suffering unto death, motivated by soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. When in our ministry, we always carry about the death and resurrection of Christ, only then do we begin to embody the standards for ministry that Jesus calls us to. Paul gives us the clearest expression of this kind of ministry in 2 Corinthians. He says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. So we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written. I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The apostle carries about both the death and life of Christ in his ministry. He ministers out of both of those. And they're simultaneously true. He is always dying and always alive to Christ. He portrays this suffering death unto life mode of ministry in his life. His his life is a display of the salvation Christ accomplished. And all of it, all of it is for the purpose of extending grace so that more and more receive that grace and give thanks to God. That's how Paul ministers. And that mode of ministry each of the disciples embody. 
paying the ultimate cost by showing the last full measure of devotion because they did not count their lives something that needed to be grasped, that they held on to, but they willingly gave themselves up. Amazingly, Jesus' brothers do finally get there. James, one of Jesus' brothers, became a pillar in the early church. He carried out the same ministry mode as his older brother when in A.D. 62 he was put on trial by the high priest Ananus for breaking the Mosaic law and was was subsequently stoned to death. That's not a pretty way to die. And I think like all of the Christian life, our ministry must be carried out in repentance, the daily taking up of our cross and, and dying to our selfish ministry tendencies and, and living to Christ. The brothers of Jesus give us hope that as such were some of you, worldly in method and motive, but through the grace that restores us, we can begin to adopt the same standards of ministry that Jesus embodies in his life and ministry. I have been preaching for some time now on ministry methods and motives, but I've not drilled down to what I mean by ministry. And why did I choose that word? Ministry is service. It's derived from the word, the same word that we get deacon from. Pastor teachers are part of the ascension gifts that Christ gave to the church for the purpose of equipping the saints for the work of ministry or service. Somehow the idea developed over time that ministry was only what pastors did in the church. That is, it was somehow reserved only for a privileged class of ministers. But our job is not to do all the ministering, but to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to serve one another. And this misperception still remains. For often when someone says, I want to start a ministry, What do they mean? They want to do something in the church. They want some office or they want some to teach some Bible study. Some even judge faithful Christian discipleship by a person's commitment to church ministries. But that only betrays this definition. That's not really. It's easy. It's very easy to sing in the choir. It is quite another thing to respect your husband or love your neighbor or be a faithful employee. But each of those is contexts for ministry. The ministry Christ calls us to is an every member ministry, not because everyone is a pastor, but because everyone is called to serve others. What does it look like, husband, to minister to your wife in a Christ-formed mode? It looks like dying to yourself, so that she can live. What mother does it look like to minister to your children? How can you carry the death and resurrection of Christ to your family? What about in your workplace? Here we must always remember that our ministry to others is carried out in Christ. That is, we serve out of our status as forgiven, cleansed, restored citizens of the kingdom of God and members of his family. If we don't remember that status and try to minister, we will 
we will inevitably slide into worldly standards. Then it will be all about boasting and glorying in ourselves, seeking bigger and better crowds to stroke our egos, all to assure ourselves of our own righteousness. But when we operate from our union with Christ, we begin to embody his ministry methods in our many deaths and resurrections. And they continue to fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. And at the heart of the antithesis between Christ and culture, between the world and Jesus' motives, Christ is against culture in its pursuit of its own glory. But Christ is transforming culture as the spread of the gospel, the dying and rising of Christ, takes hold of individuals and families and, and whole communities who, who begin to embody that Christ-formed ministry in every area of their life. Amen? Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we give you thanks for the model that Jesus set for us, the path that he paved for us to walk on, a path that leads down into the grave, a path of taking up our cross and following him, of dying daily, but also a path of resurrection life of living out of the Spirit who gave life to Jesus from the dead, who continues to quicken our mortal bodies. And so, Father, help us. Keep us from worldly standards of ministry as we serve one another. May we embody this dying and rising of Jesus in our own ministry practices. We pray this in His strong name. And amen. The ministry standards of Christ are on full display here in this table, this meal. On the very night he was betrayed, Jesus was celebrating another feast, the Passover, with his disciples. But he radically changes the significance of that Passover.